Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's Jan Bartlett and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. I go to 6 o'clock each Tuesday. Today, Ecuador, recent history with Fred Fuentes. Last week we heard part one, part two today. Monthly segment with Dr Margie Beavis um, looking at war and peace. Margie's from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Chelsea Manning, free at last. I speak to anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly. A second ship seized taking Western Saharan phosphate illegally. Polisario Front representative in Australia and New Zealand, Kamal Fidel, will be talking about that. How to judge Trump? Well, Professor Emeritus James Petrus from Bingham University in New York has an opinion. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy, and I reckon he might have an opinion too. A week, Jane, listener, when happen things just keep looking up and up and up for U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, as he denies what he confirmed, then confirms what he denied, then denies what he confirmed he denied, then confirms what he denied he confirmed, then, well, it goes on and on. It leaves us dizzy while his media spokespeople explain why he denied what he confirmed he denied and confirmed what he denied he confirmed he denied, often in the same press conference as the confirmed denial and denied confirmation changes mid-conference. Why, in that Middle East bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi, Donald denied all those confirms about evil Islam and told them Islam had been the biggest victim of terrorism? In sheer numbers, the deadliest toll has been on the innocent people of Arab and Muslim and Middle Eastern nations. Bad, very bad. Thanks to our perpetual invasions, it it sort of kick-started with Richard the Lionheart, whoever he was, and we have done our best to honour his glorious Christian legacy. Good, very, very good. Even the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin headline couldn't ignore the consistency. Trample the poor backflips. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. A while ago, Donald displayed his in-depth grasp of the issue by declaring achieving peace between Zion and the Palestinian non-state non-people should be easy. Very, very easy. Which, presumably, he'll sort out as he heads off to Zion. Perhaps a trample the poor tower in both Tel Aviv and East Jerusalem. Oh no, that would only create more problems as Zion would insist the latter has nothing to do with the non-state non-people because it is in the Zion capital. But we can be sure Donald will find an easy solution to that minor hiccup. Through all this, top marks to his media bloke, sorry, media guy, that Sean guy, for running away with the I Can Keep a Secret Award of the Week, for declaring for security reasons he couldn't say where the intelligence came from, but the US Arbors had a close relationship with Zion. Donald made a belated run at stealing the award by declaring overnight our time, I did not mention Zion to the Ruskies.
presumably while casually telling the Ruskies a few chit-chat pieces of high-security intelligence, most of which is anything but intelligent. And Donald's idea of high-security is reaching to a top shelf to drag it down and show it to whomever he's talking, if he staccato nonsense-style passes the definition of talk intelligence running riot in the White House. Anyway, Sean Guy, your I Can Keep a Secret award of the week is wigging its way across the Pacific. Back here, I've realised we've been too subtle about this slow wages growth problem the caring business class and its parliamentary puppets keep complaining about. Our subtlety seems to have gone over their brilliantly intelligent heads. Can't see the problem, we've kept saying. There's a simple answer. Well, obviously, not obviously, simple enough. So, okay, so much for subtlety. Are you listening, caring business class and parliamentary puppets? What's the problem? Just increase them. Give workers lots more money. Pay higher wages. It's hardly mensa material. Can we make it any clearer? The answer to slow wages growth is higher wages growth. Their comprehension of the bleeding obvious is essential as they complain that slow wages growth is decelerating, that we have the slowest slow wages growth since they started keeping figures, way below the inflation figure. Interesting that, because the great exponents of, who know all about the greatest little economic order of them all, keep telling us the overwhelming cause of -of out-of-control inflation is... Wages growth, wages, selfish, lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions. So what's caused this inflation if not wages? Surely not. Oh no, couldn't possibly be. No, no, no. Not greed. And the same expert practitioners of assure we ignorant lay people high wages not only cause high inflation, but price workers out of jobs, create unemployment. It's better to have 100% of a low wage than 100% of no wage. So obviously the figures this week will reflect that. Slower than slow wages growth creating the obverse. Unemployment must be falling. Employment must have increased. Let's check that. Goodness me can't believe it. Unemployment hasn't come down. God, lucky there was slower than wages growth or nobody would have a job. And those who do, well, many of those who do, comprise the record levels of underemployment. Workers earning lower than slower than slow who wish they could have full-time jobs so they can upgrade from their not-so-comfy little gutters. But in case you think this is a depressing figure, don't panic. Go to the fridge and pop the corks. It's, it's great news. Not just good, but great. And that quote from no economic ignoramus like me, but from Lord Rupert of Wapping's caring business class economic expert, Terry Pukan, who knows all there is to know about the greatest little economic order. In fact, Terry says it would be better for all of us, particularly workers themselves, if slow wage slower than slow was even slower than slower than slow. Slow wages growth is absolutely essential, he saged in that Bible of logic, the whopping sin. Indeed, even a lower growth rate would be just as great or even better. And an even moderately higher growth rate would be a disaster. So thank goodness wages are falling and prices are rising. And we can safely assume that Terry Pukat is enjoying slow wages growth along with those he advocates are better off for it. Why, he probably rings Lord Rupert every day, 
begging for a wage cut. And don't forget, the same Terry Pucan also makes a strong and logical argument that true Blue Aussie should not risk the greatest little economic order of them all by doing anything about the leftist lie of climate change. So when Terry speaks, we have to listen. Or more correctly, when he writes, we have to read, particularly if we're a fan of fiction. Terry must be thrilled the budget took about a week to start looking hopelessly unbalanced as big economic gurus scuttled them more or less than surplus in four years. Well, every budget predicts a bigger deficit this year and a surplus in four years. Scuttle them surplus was predicated largely on higher and higher wages. Perhaps he does understand. Realising more and more payroll tax, in fairness to scuttle them, that assumption lasted a whole seven days before sinking without trace. Still, who needs taxes? Well, taxes from the filthy rich, because the indigent can't avoid them. Who needs when the filthy rich can decide to give a bit of what they avoided back and remove from the inefficient, voted uh, hand of the public sector the decision on where they'll be spent? A journo yesterday asked um, Fattest Profits Q Mineral Supremo Twitty why he spent heaps opposing the mining tax when he just loves helping the public purse. I couldn't have made this super generous, what a wonderful man I am donation, if I'd had to pay tax as well, he explained the benefit of not paying tax. And the disadvantage for the workers who can't avoid tax is that they can't decide on what it will be spent, but can rest assured it won't be wasted on anything that might help them. Wasn't it heartwarming to hear Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten ambition eulogise the generosity of the filthy rich caring employer class, on which the banks and others would have advised all these people caught up in this tax fraud business to get better tax lawyers and accountants. And while we're obviously stunned that tax avoidance goes on, listener, those who know would be even more stunned that someone actually got caught. But back to Terry Pucad's caring employer, Lord Rupert. While the rest of the media concentrated on the alleged crooks involved and obviously wrongly made them and the alleged fraud the story, not the whopping sin. No, it managed tax cheat Casanova all over P1. Love rat and big picky of love rats, so-called mistress, featuring huge décolletage. And a double-page spread inside with six more pickies of alleged mistress. She's the story. And what a pity Dad, the deputy commissioner investigating tax fraud, just missed noticing what the kids were up to. Father's Day lunch promises to be fun, fun, fun at their place. Sadly, real crime... Evil trade unionism rules the roost. Led by the CFMEU with Secretary Dave Oliver and Western True Blue Aussie officials fined 277 grand and the union forced to pay Great True Blue Aussie Corporation John Helland more for workers 525 grand over a dispute involving union rights and safety when everyone... Well, every responsible one knows unions have no rights and no right to have rights, but those who know the caring business class and caring business class media barons argue the penalties are too light to be a disincentive and the more than 800 grand all up should be increased. Finally, same time, 
salt, sugar and fat purveyor Domino's How to Exploit Workers, run by a very, very, very close mate of Gina's, guilty of breaking franchise laws, laws and fined a crippling $18,000, all of 2.24% of what the evil union and its officials were fined, which in this case, the same those who know said was outrageous and showed how unfair the law is. And who said the all equal before the laws an ass? Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And you can say good morning to Mr. Kevin Healy tomorrow at nine here on 3CR with his team for City Limits. Three weeks to the Radiothon. On the program last week, activist and journalist Fred Fuentes spoke about the recent history of Ecuador, particularly the 10-year presidency of Correa. We pick up on this period with the decision to wipe out one-third of the foreign debt, which was incurred during the military dictatorship and therefore illegitimate. So the changes in foreign debt, the wiping out of one-third... Does that mean that the government then had more money that they could spend on social issues and the other issues that they were important to the government? Well, that combined with the fact that in the Constitution, it was the clause in the Constitution that had essentially enshrined about 30% of Ecuador's budget had to go to refinancing the foreign debt. Again, that was also eliminated. So this, this allowed a huge, a huge you know, shift in the ability of the government to actually start redirecting spending uh, towards you know, uh, social spending, towards the, the things that could benefit the people. So you've got a combination of the, the total debt has been dramatically reduced and the government is freer in terms of how it budgets its money, not having to dedicate a third of its budget to refinancing, uh, to basically paying off these debts. And I would add a, a third factor, uh, which was independent of this, but you know was, was not a small factor in, in helping the government to get to where it was, which was the combined rise in oil prices and the greater sort of taxation that the state put on oil in order to also increase its revenue, meant that you know al- almost within a space of a year or two, Ecuador's budget had you know doubled, almost tripled in what it could spend in, in terms of social spending. And so you, you see that today, where social spending uh, has increased in many cases when we talk about health, education, not just doubled in terms of ratio to GDP, but in some cases tripled the amount of spending in ratio to GDP in a context where Ecuador's GDP, because of the massive economic growth it it has had over the last 10, 11 years, means that, you know, it's, it's just a huge gulf between what was being spent on health and education, on social programs, on social security, compared to what is being spent on that today. But there wasn't blanket support by the Indigenous peoples for the government, because, mainly because of mining on their lands? The relationship, as I mentioned, with, with the indi- uh, Indigenous movements uh, and Indigenous peoples, which I think is, is important to, to differentiate, that, you know, of course, not Indigenous movement or Indigenous peoples are not a homogenous group. Uh, even within Ecuador, there are quite a number of different indigenous nationalities, indigenous uh, ethnic groups that live within there, each with their own forms of organisations, some of which are more representative than, than others. As I mentioned, uh, there was always from the beginning 
uh, a somewhat complicated relationship between them and, and Rafael Correa, starting with uh, the discussion about you know, would they be able to form a joint slate uh, to run in the elections. That was not successful uh, at the time, but at least a compromise was reached where, particularly in the second round, where it was unsure of who, who might win the second round, the, the, you know, almost all of the Indigenous movements came out in support of Correa saying, well, look, in the second round we want Correa to win because you know, Correa at least stands for a number of the, the policies that, that we stand for. And since then, what you've had in terms of the relationship between the government, Indigenous movements, Indigenous peoples, is whilst the government has been able to increase its support amongst the general Indigenous populations, it has simultaneously isolated itself uh, from a lot of the Indigenous movements. Uh, if you wanted to sum it up uh, crudely, the majority of, of Indigenous people may support Korea, but those that are most organised tend to be the most critical of Korea in terms of the indigenous, indigenous populations in Ecuador. And this has been for a variety of reasons. Mining is, is just one of the sort of areas of disagreement. And perhaps I would say beyond mining, it really has to do with a question of indigenous autonomy and prior consultation or uh, indigenous control over resources in their own land. Because, of course, this, this extends beyond mining to questions of oil as well, but even water resources. So there has been a, a big debate between uh, indigenous movements and the government as to who, who should be able to exercise control over these natural resources. It, should it just be local indigenous communities? Uh, should it just be the government as a representation of the people? Or is there a need for a broader uh, you know, national dialogue and debate about how these natural resources should be utilised? But that's not the only point of conflict. Another one has been, for instance, uh, during the neoliberal period, one way that the right-wing parties had attempted to co-opt at least sectors of the indigenous movement had been to essentially incorporate them into the state. So, for instance, an entire body had been set up, a lot of it with funding from the World Bank, to provide, to look after indigenous education. The Rafael Correa government had a different vision of education that said we need to incorporate indigenous education into the education curriculum but it cannot be something that's separated off it cannot be something that's just done off in one department but has to be part of our holistic vision for education and this again caused another area of friction with indigenous movements who who believed that the Korea government was essentially pushing them out of having a say of being able to run uh, indigenous education in order for the government to be able to control all of that. Another issue has been what has been you know, referred to commonly by the indigenous movements as, as a kind of a criminalisation of their protest movement, where a number of, uh, of indigenous leaders are currently either facing trial or, or in jail for their involvement in protest. So there's been a whole variety of, of different points of conflict between the indigenous movement and the Korea government. But as I said, I, you know, this, this contradictory situation where, where at the top level, where the leaderships are in conflict, we also find that in general, you have a big, you know, in, in a lot of the indigenous voting population uh, tend to still support Korea, although again, that, that's not, not a blanket thing we saw in the Amazonian region in the more recent elections, tended to vote actually for neither Pachakutik, the traditional indigenous left party, nor for Korea, but actually for the right-wing party. So, so it's, you know, just to show you how much of a, a diversity there is within the indigenous peoples in Ecuador. Did he manage to retain the support of the, the social movements and perhaps the trade unions during that 10-year period? 
What has happened over that 10-year period is a division, really, within the social movements. So what we've seen is that probably some of the movements that played a, a bigger role in the uprisings in the 90s and the beginning of the 21st century, a lot of those would today tend to find themselves being quite critical of the government. Of course, when I say critical, that may vary as to what I mean by critical. Some of them are critical, but would have maybe still have called for a vote for Correa or for uh, Moreno in the more recent election. Others would be critical to the point of, you know, just calling for a vote for the right-wing candidate because they just see the, the main enemy being Correa. But a lot of those, those movements, uh, in particular indigenous movements such as Conay, in particular some of the trade union movements such as the Kut, they today tend to be much more critical of the government. I would add to that, though, that their influence today is a lot less than what it was during the 90s and, and in, the, in the turn of the century. What you also have is a range of smaller organisations, of more local or regionally based organisations, of new organisations that have emerged under Korea that are much more supportive of Korea. And again, here I would emphasise that there's a diversity of views from, you know, uh, uncritical, you know, loyal support to Korea and his government to a, a, a real sense of, you know, of support, but that not being a barrier to coming out onto the streets when necessary to protest a certain policy or to fight for a certain, a certain demand. I think that's, that's how you would roughly characterise the, 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 the social movements today, that you know, some of the, the more traditional national-based you know, organisations of a national reach, the larger ones, the ones that you know, figured in a lot of these uprisings today, have been isolated by the government, but also have been isolated from their own social base. And a whole range of new or smaller, you know, disparate organisations that tend to be more supportive of the government. And this is obviously, I should add, you know, obviously a big problem that Correa has faced and that Moreno uh, will have to, Lena Moreno, the new presidential candidate, will have to be able to deal with and resolve if he wants to be able to push forward uh, with, uh, the, you know, the so-called citizens' revolution underway in Ecuador. The US base, bases, did they get rid of them? Yes, and that was quite early on. The, the U.S. Manta military base, which was actually, if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty sure about this, was the largest U.S. military base in South America. It was near the border uh, with Colombia. Uh, that was almost one of the first things that, that the Korea government did. I, in fact, I, I think he was fortunate in that, you know, obviously, a lot of these military bases are you know, on, a, on, a, on a contractual basis, and the contract was coming up for renewal. And Korea had made it clear, look, I, this base will go once I'm in power. And as soon as it came to the time for renewal, he said this, this base will not be renewed and that base was closed down. The new president is, as you said, Lenin Moreira. He didn't win by much, so there's a lot of opposition within Ecuador. It depends on how you look at the voting figures. Certainly, when you compare Lenin Moreno's vote to Correa's vote, who in the last elections essentially won it in the first round, compared to Correa's support, Moreno's vote was lower than that and, you know, a fair bit low. Having said that, Moreno's vote in the first round, which was just shy of 40%, was 39 point something, was the highest vote any presidential candidate, barring Rafael Correa, has got since democracy was re-established in Ecuador in mid-70s. So in that sense, you know, he's far from being an unpopular uh, person on his own right, in that he almost won the elections. He was just about a half a percent shy of having won the elections uh, in just uh, in, in the first round outright. Then in the second round, what he had was a constellation of forces. Those on the right, of course, the two main candidates on the right, unified their campaign against Moreno. 
but you also had smaller fragmented sectors that could be roughly defined as either centre-left or left-leaning, also basically jumping on the anti-Korea, anti-Marino bandwagon to try and see if they could defeat the project of the citizens' revolution in the ballot box. Despite this wide-ranging opposition, uh, whose only common point was really opposition to Moreno. I think if, if you ask them what to do with the country once you got rid of Moreno, none of them would really agree on, on much. Uh, even despite that, Moreno was still able to, in the end, win with, I think it was 51 point something, r roughly a 2% margin, not very dissimilar to what, for instance, Macri, uh, the right-wing candidate, won, won in Argentina last year, and which much of the media you know, essentially said was a, a convincing victory for their candidate. So I think Moreno's result shows that there is still a very strong support base uh, for the citizens' revolution, for the project that was initiated under the Correa government, a support base which is still the largest political party political project in the country. I should add that actually Alianza Pais, uh, the party that set up by Rafael Correa, which stood Moreno as a candidate, has won a majority in the National Assembly as a further reflection of the support it has at, at the national level, and also won very convincingly a, a referendum uh, to put forward at the time of the first round of the elections in, re, in regards to basically banning politicians from being able to have money in financial tax havens. Uh, it won that with about a 55% of the vote. These results show that it has an important support base, the largest support base of any political party, of any political project in the country. But it also shows that it needs to work to, to strengthen and to broaden out that support as well if it really wants to be able to be able to push forward uh, with its political project. Because already, prior to the elections, you know, Correa was finding that there was increasing resistance to his ability to implement uh, certain political uh, projects and, you know, or certain political policies. One of those, uh, to give a, a good example, actually occurred the year prior, which was when he attempted to implement some tax changes that would have largely have focused on increasing tax on the highest uh, income earning section of the population. In fact, it was you know, put forward as a, you know, a tax on the 1%. And you know, the government explained how you know, the only people that would be affected by this was essentially the top 1% of society. But the media, together with the right-wing opposition, were able to mobilise people on the streets against this project. Then, in turn, other sectors of the centre-left, the anti-Korea anti left, also became part of these mobilisations, creating a, a, a political situation that meant that the government had to back down from what was otherwise a, a very progressive policy that would have been of, of great benefit for the people, for, for the government, uh, for the country in a context where the oil prices were decreasing. And so budgetary concerns meant that the government had to find revenue from, from somewhere else. So Moreno, if he's wanting to continue on with these progressive policies, if he's wanting to deepen the citizens' revolution, uh, we'll have to acknowledge that he, he needs to, building on the support he has, uh, reach out and see how he can bring back into the fold certain sections to allow him to be able to move forward and not face this kind of resistance if he tries to implement uh, similar style sort of radical or progressive policies in the future. Is Korea still part of the government? Uh, Korea at the moment has no official role in, in the government, but you know, he, he certainly not said that he's retiring from politics, uh, so I think he will continue to have uh, some role to play, uh, but as I said, he, he's neither a, a minister or, or, or a parliamentarian, uh, he currently has no official role in, in the government today. In that sense, Ecuador also provides a very important lesson that uh, irrespective of a lot of the talk about, you know, that a lot of 
what has happened in Latin America over the last few years is simply because of charismatic populist leaders. I think Ecuador shows that you know, a, a good, serious government with clear policies that's able to make a fundamental change to people's lives means that it's able to have a transition where you're able to have an election and have you know, another person from the same left party um, elected into power to be able to continue on with that political process is, is an important sort of a, a rebuke uh, to, to some of the claims about uh, it's all just about popular charismatic leaders and there's nothing else beyond that in Latin America. You can't really talk about politics in Latin and South America without factoring in US interference. How is it in Ecuador? The interference has, has been long-ranging, you know, well, well before... Correa came into power. That will only continue to increase. Now, of course, th this happens through a variety of means, whether it's through the funding of right-wing opposition parties, whether it's through attempts to further stoke divisions amongst the social movements, again, whether it be through providing funds to certain groups, uh, where it's seen to be able to um, help develop, sort of foment anti-Correa sort of sentiments, whether it's been as it's been before of uh, taking away trade agreements uh, that are, were deemed to be beneficial to Ecuador. There are many ways that the U.S. Uh, has in, interfered, continues to interfere, meddling uh, in, in the police and in the military as well, uh, which has been, you know, has been exposed that, that part of the figures that were behind an attempted coup against Korea were linked in different ways or had been in contact with the U.S. Embassy prior to, to that coup attempt. I think it's fair to say that a lot, a lot of this will continue, although, of course, you know, the U.S. is going to have play perhaps a bit of a wait-and-see game to see what happens with Lennon Moreno. But I don't think they're going to wait for too long because, in their view, the, the winds of change have shifted in Latin America. We've had, in Argentina, a right-wing candidate uh, elected into power. In Brazil, essentially a constitutional coup has brought the right wing into power. Uh, in Venezuela, their attempts to get rid of the Maduro government continue to intensify day by day. And so, you know, countries particularly like Ecuador and Bolivia under Evo Morales re remain a real thorn in the side, remain, a, you know, still there, still a reminder that there is a, you know, a progressive alternative uh, in, in Latin America. And so I think they'll do whatever they can, whether that be bring down the Lenin Moreno government, whether that be strengthen the opposition in preparation for a, for a future election, or whether that be, and I, you know, this certainly can't be ruled out, or, although I don't, don't think it's the most likely scenario, but a real attempt to basically co-opt the Lenin Moreno administration to basically say, look, you know, times have changed. It's no longer the, the Latin America of a decade ago of radical anti-imperialism, of, you know, regional integration. Uh, now, you know, it's basically back to the status quo, back to having to deal with the U.S., and seeing if they can if they can woo the government uh, in in its direction. Although, as I said, I, I think that's the least likely of, of of the possible scenarios. Finally, Fred, has the country been penalised for offering sanctuary to Julian Assange? The country is always under you know sort of been treated uh, in a, in a way that's made it very clear that because of what it's what it's it's harbouring of Assange makes it viewed as, as a sort of a, you know, maybe not an enemy state, that's probably a bit of a strong term, but certainly as a, as a problematic state. And, you know, it should be noted that almost all of the other candidates, uh, in particular the main opposition candidates, made it clear that you know, almost the first thing they would do if they were elected was to, you know, kick Assange out of the Ecuadorian embassy uh, in London. This has obviously become a, a, a thorny issue. 
uh, in all sorts of uh, diplomatic relations. But to its credit, Ecuador has, has stuck firm uh, on this. And, it, you know, it, it's seen this question not, not just simply a question of Julian Assange. Uh, it's not just simply a question of the kind of work that Assange and WikiLeaks has done. But it's really attempted to turn this into a, you know, a question of sovereignty, a question of uh, respect for not just Ecuador, but for South America, and saying, look, we should have the right to bring Assange back to Ecuador, allow him to come to Ecuador and be granted asylum, because this is basically you know, what international law dictates, um, and not allowing us to do this and succumbing to the pressure would be to basically say the international rules of the game no longer count for anything. It's basically you know, the strongest takes all. And in this context, Ecuador has been a very small country. It doesn't have a lot of economic weight, military weight. You know, it doesn't have much weight in anything, except for perhaps it's got a very strong moral weight, a very strong weight in terms of having proven itself to be a country and a government that's willing to stand up for what it believes to be right, um, and will continue to do so, I think, in, in terms of Assange. And, and certainly, Lenin Moreno has made that clear as well, that his position and his administration will maintain the same position as Correa's, which is, we have given Assange asylum in the, in the embassy, and we want him to be able to come to Ecuador to serve out um, his asylum in the country. And thanks to historian and author Fred Fuentes for that talk about Ecuador, a small country on the northwestern side of South America. And just for people who remember Brian McKinlay, Brian has been unwell for a little while now, but he is on the move, on the mend, and hopefully in the near future he'll be back on the program. Just for people who might be missing Brian's talks on history, hopefully he'll be back not too distant future. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith and Pauline Fartson Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. Corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash Q-A-E-N or call 9639-8622. That's 9639-8622, a 3CR supporter. Yarra Council presents the 5th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017, opening on Thursday the 13th of July with Augie March at the Corner Hotel. Hosted in more than 40 music venues within the city of Yarra, the 10-day festival runs until Sunday the 23rd of July and features Ed Cooper, Dave Graney, the Letter String Quartet, Brooke Russell and Hungry Ghosts Reformation Show. For participating venues and tickets go to Leaps and Bounds Music Festival dot com. Three CR supporter. Time now for our monthly segment with the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Margie Beavis. Margie, we've talked before about 
the move by Lockheed Martin into Melbourne University with a new research laboratory. We're aware of the US war machine at Pine Gap and other so-called defence facilities. Now Northrop Grumman, which has been in Australia for a while, has announced it will make a $50 million investment to develop an advanced electronics maintenance and sustainment centre at the Badgerys Creek Precinct, the site of the second Sydney airport. What do you know about that? Yes, it was announced by the government in a great flurry as being something that would help Western Sydney and very enthusiastically embraced by our Prime Minister and also the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian as a start of something really great. And likewise, the University of Western Sydney is really looking forward to the opportunity, in inverted commas. But what's not transparent at all is how much the government, of the $5.3 billion that they're spending on this airport, how much is being used to encourage Northrop Gunman to come. It's interesting in the context when you think of how adamant this government was against car industry subsidies. And I would be very, I would be astonished if there aren't some considerable subsidies going into getting this company into Australia. Quite concerning because really it's now Australia turning its manufacturing and jobs. I mean, it's all about jobs now and, and to be becoming increasingly reliant on building weapons. This centre is going to be supporting electronic equipment, sort of drones, the Joint Strike Fighter, F-35s and other aircraft. And, and for Australia to become increasingly dependent on an industry that really thrives in warfare and only will do well if there's warfare is um, really disappointing, very disappointing, because if they're their first tenant for this airport, you do wonder what's been going on behind the scenes. Australians are aware of the, the spread of Australian troops serving overseas to support the US war machine in the Middle East and probably other places as well, but maybe not so in Africa. And what the Australian newspaper called an exclusive, the news that... Australian troops have been in the, on the ground in Niger in Central Africa training soldiers to fight Boko Haram in Nigeria. Yes, again, there's a lack of transparency in what Australia is doing in defence areas. I mean, the Americans said in March that there was a exercise happening with Australia, Canada and Belgium and both US and Canada came out saying this is what they were doing with their troops. But Australia didn't mention it to anybody and it wasn't until they were asked by a journalist whether Australia was there that they said, oh yes, we are there. And they in some ways tried to normalise it by saying it was part of their regular international training engagements. Well, it would be useful to know what other regular international training engagements exist because getting Australian troops involved in areas in, in foreign countries, it's important that the Australian people know what we're doing and why we're doing it. So once again, it's a lack of transparency about what Australia's role is in countries and conflicts overseas. When, when the journalist then asked, apparently this is the second time Australia's been part of these activities in Niger, but no one wasn't even aware the first time. So yes, again, it's concerning as to what our commitments our government is making for our troops. And also the, the impact on the troops themselves being sent to all these places around the world to, to fight someone else's war. Yes, I think we're told this is just a training exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I agree with you that if, if we keep sort of sending soldiers off different parts of the world, it's important that we know about this so that the government can be held accountable. The UN nuclear weapons 
ban negotiations. The next round is on the 15th of June until the 7th of July. Is this the final round? Hopefully, yes. The chair of the first round, Elaine White, was very positive that the first round of negotiations in March had progressed so well that she was um, going to work very hard to get the final wording and the final ban treaty ready to be voted on on July 7 and get agreed wording um, approved. And really, I think there's been over 100, I think it's 132 countries are there negotiating and the negotiations so far have gone extremely well. So we've got another round of three weeks in June, July in New York, and we're really optimistic that by the 7th of June we actually will have agreed wording to make these appalling weapons finally recognised for the sort of illegal weapons that they are. They're sort of the ultimate weapons of mass destruction and there's no way that they're legal. The advantage of making them illegal, of course, be, as we've said before, to, by stigmatising them, then you'll lead to a loss of prestige for all these countries that so strut about with having nuclear weapons. But not only that, you'll lead to divestment. Companies like Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, ANZ, our Future Fund, Macquarie Bank, all profit from nuclear weapons companies. And once these weapons are illegal, the divestment will follow, and then there will be identification of stockpiles, verification of stockpiles, and then reduction in stockpiles, which would be really a wonderful thing. And no way that Australia is going to be there, the Australian government? No, no, the Australian government's been pathetic. It's uh, The Liberal Party has really been asked on many occasions why they're not going to be there, and it's because they believe that Australia benefits from sheltering under the American nuclear weapons umbrella. We wouldn't think it was acceptable to be sheltering under a smallpox umbrella or some other terrible weapon that caused death and destruction at a wide scale, yet Australia seems to think it's OK to do that. Um, and the other thing that's very disappointing is that Australia is a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And in fact, this conference is part of the undertakings of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, that they will work in all ways to try and achieve nuclear disarmament, yet Australia is breaking its undertakings under Article 6 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So it's very disappointing all around. The Labor Party and the Greens actually have good policies on this and have said that they would support a treaty and that they would sign up for a treaty. So we're encouraged by that, but it's very disappointing what the current government is doing and how they're not participating in these negotiations. So you're saying that if um, the Labor Party got in the next election after this treaty is signed, that Australia could participate then? We would ratify it, yes. yes. That's what their current policy is, yes, which is very encouraging. What will your role be? You're going? Yes, I'm very excited. I think I'm general support person. I don't know. They, the last negotiations, they gave everybody a task. I mean, some people were putting information out on Twitter. Some people were making phone calls. Some people were giving talks at side events. One person, like Professor Tillman Russ, gave a talk to the whole assembly about the sort of appalling humanitarian impacts again. We're also supporting some survivors, test survivors, nuclear test survivors coming from areas sort of in central Australia, in Maralinga, um, from the Pacific. So people who could actually stand up and say, this is what it's like to be bombed and these are the appalling consequences. Uh, the Marshall Island particularly have suffered, but there's many areas that have suffered with these weapons. And it's really, yeah, I'm very excited to be going and really looking forward to it. Will you be there the whole time or just for a short period? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. With work, I have to. I, I couldn't get all the time off that I would like, but I've, I'm going to be there for 10 days out of the three weeks, so that's pretty exciting. Well, there will be a report back from that. But yes, definitely. <laughs>
there's a to coincide with these talks, there's a women's march, ban the bomb. Yes, it's national. It's seven cities. If people want to find out about it, they can just pop I can. Day of Action, ICANN being International Campaign for the Evolution of Nuclear Weapons, so just put ICANN Day of Action if they're not in Victoria. If they're in Victoria, it's at the State Library on the 17th of June at 1 o'clock. So that's the corner of Swanson and Trove Streets. And it's, uh, yeah, no, it, it should be a really good, there's an International Day of Action, so I'll, I'll be, in, there'll be one in New York as well, so there'll be, all over the world, there'll be people marching to support this really important treaty. You mentioned a moment ago the survivors of the nuclear tests in South Australia. We've had the announcement that the the government's going to give the survivors a gold card. Well, that's Aren't terrific. Aren't they lucky? Well, a lot of them are dead. Yes. Um, it's really, these are tests from the 50s and 60s, and this is, this is a long way too late. And I, it's, it's good that it's happened, but it is, given that these people have sort of suffered, I mean, there's over a thousand people who were involved in these tests in emu fields in Maralinga. A lot of them indigenous, a lot of them veterans, um, and they've sort of you know rates of blindness, unusually high rates of cancer. I mean, they're almost 23% more likely to get cancer and nearly 20% more likely to die of cancer, um, skin problems. So they've struggled with ill health and other ill effects for decades. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's very good that it's happened, but it's a long way too late, and the recognition is very disappointing. I mean. In 2013, Scott Ludlam applied to the British Parliament to try and get an act of grace about them offering some compensation for these people, but the British didn't come to the party and said there was no way you could prove their link. You've um, been up to those areas, haven't you, Margie? Yeah, uh, well, not Marilyn and exactly. but, yeah, South Australia, yes, I've been near there, but not actually there. And, and then people up there are, are now fighting another battle with um, the nuclear dumps. Yes, indeed. The, the, they want to put intermediate level waste in the sort of foothills of the, the nuclear of the Flinders Ranges at Hawker, and that's very disappointing. And there's also a second site, Kimber, which is one hour. Hawker is about one hour north of Port Augusta, and Kimber is about one hour west of Port Augusta. So they're both about four or five hours out of Adelaide. And um, these communities, it's divided these communities. It's very um, distressing for these communities because this is waste that's going to be around for between ten and 100,000 years, and it's really the, the proposal from the government is very substandard. It's not up to world's best practice. So it's really, yet again, the nuclear fuel chain and the nuclear waste is coming to, to haunt these societies, these communities. Are you aware of how far advanced these plans are for moving that in? The processes are still underway. I think they, they take a very long time to do this. I sometimes feel like it's a war of attrition on the opposition. But that's my understanding is that for the Flinders Ranges site, they're currently doing assessments of the Aboriginal heritage of the site, and that will take some time. For the Kimber site, which is a really high-quality barley-growing area, they're going to hold a vote of the citizens in June. I think it's June 21st them to decide whether or not they go to the next stage. Now, going to the next stage is not saying yes to the dump. Going to the next stage is saying that the community will get $2 million from the government for disruption fund, because the government recognises how distressing this is for the communities, but $2 million is sort of part of the payoff for going to the next stage. So this vote will not be binding, but it's still, the community is very distressed and divided, and I think it's really... It's high time the government stopped trying to 
put this waste on community. I mean, for over 20 years they've been trying to put it in Aboriginal lands and it's time they stopped and had an inquiry into how it should be best dealt with because the proposal they're putting for is substandard. And worse than that, the ANSTO in, in Sydney is proposing to expand its production of nuclear waste. Now, it's got no social licence, but that's what they're proposing to do. And that's... Um, really needs to be reviewed and looked at because we don't even know what to do with the waste we have already and for ANSTO to be developing an export industry that will leave us with a whole lot of nuclear waste from other countries. Health systems is, is very poor, especially when they've had absolutely no public consultation. Is that what's proposed? Is it bringing waste from other countries? No, it's not bringing waste from other countries. What it is, is it's making isotopes for medical use. This is in Sydney? Yeah, this is in Sydney. Yep. They're, they're proposing to, and that will produce quite a lot more nuclear waste of intermediate level, which is the really problematic waste. It's the waste that requires this very, very long time frame. I mean, if you think 10,000 to 100,000 years is a long time frame, the pharaohs were only 5,000 years ago. So how they're proposing to keep something safe for 10,000 to 100,000 years is beyond me. I was thinking more of the proposal for South Australia. Well, the South Australia will end up with the waste from Sydney. That's the problem, that Sydney's making more and wanting to dump it on South Australia. That's, mm. that, you know, not only are they having problems finding their place for the existing waste, but they are proposing to increase the amount of waste they're making. I mean, the first principle of toxic waste production is, in fact, to reduce the production, but, in fact, ANSTO in Sydney, in fact, they currently are already ramping up production of intermediate nuclear-level waste. How does the waste from medical differ from other nuclear waste? Well, the government's made a big song and dance about medical medicine being the reason that Australia has its existing waste, when in fact when you use nuclear medicines in a patient, it dies off the... The radioactivity is a bit like a battery. It runs down very quickly and most of the... In fact, all but about 99% of the um, nuclear medicine used in patients goes into the normal rubbish stream. After about six months, it can go into a normal rubbish tip. The problem is the making of the nuclear medicine and that's that's it's the reactor that makes the nuclear medicine and that's where the waste comes from and most countries don't have a reactor i mean america doesn't have a reactor making nuclear medicine nor does england they import their nuclear medicines and we could do the same if we wish to but we instead we choose to have a reactor what's also sad is that australia is not collaborating to increase research to make nuclear medicines by cyclotron because it's that research is coming, that process is coming, and it means if you do it with a cyclotron, there is no long-lived nuclear waste. So Australia, instead of looking at research, it's a bit like green energy. In some ways, Australia is investing in the old technology instead of looking at much newer, cleaner technologies. That's very disappointing. A topic we've talked about quite often is the, the amount of foreign aid, and I know a certain amount of foreign aid is boomerang aid, but... Nevertheless, the foreign aid budget is being cut considerably again. Absolutely. Um, the last budget, we dropped $303 million. We cut a further $303 million for aid. We're aiming now, we've got out of every $100 that Australia has in gross domestic product, we're aiming for $0.21, cents, whereas in fact the global recommendation is 70 cents and in fact in the United Kingdom they've legislated in so it's permanently 0.7% instead of 0.21% so Australia is less than a third of what England is offering and still cutting and to contrast with that 
they've increased the defence budget by $2.3 billion in the next 12 months. So whilst aid is dropping and dropping, we've increased our defence budget. So we're heading now to 1.9% of GDP. We're going to end up with spending 10 times as much on the military as we do on foreign aid. And we're also cutting out of diplomatic spending. So it's very false economy because well, well-directed diplomatic spending can prevent a lot of conflict. And for Australia to be cutting foreign aid, which stabilises societies and helps people stay where they want to live, and to be cutting diplomatic funding, um, they lost $37 million. It's so much the wrong way to be going. It's a very false economy. You'll end up spending much, much more in conflicts and lots of soldiers will die and civilians will die, whereas if we could be focusing more on foreign aid and more on increasing our diplomatic actions, Australia could be working positively to try and prevent conflict. Margie, what's the generation for nuclear reactor technology? Gen 4 reactor technology is been tried for about the last 50 to 60 years. It's the, the magical way of making nuclear power that's supposed to be too cheap to meter problem with it is that it's been tried and tried and tried again and countries have spent billions and billions of dollars trying to get this technology to work and it just doesn't work. It's not worked anywhere. In Russia, the only place where they actually have Gen 4 reactors working, the only reason they keep working is because they tolerate multiple fires in the reactor because these reactors need very high temperatures and because they need very high temperatures, most of them use liquid sodium or other liquid metals to cool them. The only problem with that is that liquid sodium explodes when it's in contact with water and it catches fire when it's in contact with air. Having such an explosive material right next to nuclear material is very dangerous. So what's with Gen 4 reactors in Australia uh, last year, ANSTO again in Sydney, signed on to say Australia wanted to be part of research projects in Gen 4 reactor technology. Now, we at MAPW think this is incredibly unwise, given that the technology has failed for decades. It's incredibly expensive, and we would be much, much, much better putting that research effort into renewable energies. If they're interested in cheap power, renewable energy is much cheaper than nuclear, and putting our efforts, our research efforts and our research monies into technologies that are already proven and that are much safer and cleaner seems to us by far preferable. So currently there's a, a, a hearing in front of the Joint Senate Committee on Treaties to see whether this treaty committing Australia to this research should go ahead and we've put in a submission saying that we strongly believe it should not happen. Is this ANSTO pushing this? Again, yes. They would see it as maintaining Australia's nuclear capability. Well, there's no real need for Australia to have a nuclear capability given we have no intention of having a nuclear reactor for power and we have no intention of getting nuclear weapons. So it makes no sense for us to be a party to this. But that's their little empire, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's Dr Margie Beavis, who's the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, who will be off to the UN to take part in the negotiations for the UN nuclear ban in June, July. So we'll have to find someone else to do the monthly for that time. But here's the message about the ban the bomb march. 
Are you concerned about the growing threat of nuclear weapons? Join the Women's March to Ban the Bomb on the 17th of June in cities across Australia. It's women-led but inclusive of all. Go to womenbanthebomb.org for details. Voice your support for the UN negotiations now underway on a treaty to outlaw nuclear weapons and protest against Australia's shameful boycott of these historic talks. 17th of June, womenbanthebomb.org. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia is a 3CR supporter. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. Free at last. 29-year-old Chelsea Manning was released at 3am on the 17th of May from the military detention facility in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, after spending seven years in prison. She was initially sentenced to 35 years for leaking of military intelligence records, a sentence that was pardoned by President Obama in January this year. Kieran O'Reilly has been campaigning for her release since her capture, and I spoke with Kieran this morning and asked him to remind us of Chelsea's crimes, which led to a sentence of 35 years. Well, the most serious one was aiding the enemy that uh, carried the death penalty. That the, the military judge found against that, and there are lots of other dealing with classified information, basically what Hillary Clinton's accused of being sloppy with classified information, now Donald Trump. So Chelsea was deployed to Baghdad in um, late 2009-2010 and came across evidence, uh, the most famous being if you go to collateralmurder.org, the massacre of uh, 11 unarmed civilians, I think nine Iraqis and two Reuters journalists just doing their job from a helicopter gunship, which was probably about a mile and a half away. But I was just listening, actually, uh, on Twitter, Jimmy Dore kind of goes through all the things that uh, was released by Chelsea. And often, um, you know, historians credit the Arab Spring pretty much from this release by Chelsea and the publication by WikiLeaks. And also the inability for the US military to stay in Iraq once these cables were released uh, up to that point. I think what the US was looking for was an immunity for their soldiers from any crimes in Iraq. And once the Iraqi government saw the cables, they weren't willing to give that immunity. And that's why Obama had to pull the troops out. Now, of course, the troops are back in. So, yeah, there were a myriad of charges. And the, the court was very dragged out from the arrest in uh, May 2010 to the court-martial in mid-2013. It was three years uh, remanded. And part of that, the only part of it, very much included torture for the first couple of months in Kuwait and then for about nine months in a U.S. Marine base in Quantico, though Chelsea's not part of it, part of the US Marines, part of the Army, but it was held at a Marine base in Virginia. And, and for nine months, 
if you read the conditions, it was very much to break her, to implicate Julian Assange. And, you know, my understanding is Chelsea refused to break and, and talk to interrogators. So, um, and up to that point, up to 2013, we never hear the voice of Chelsea. And unlike Edward Snowden, who flew straight to Hong Kong and spoke straight to camera and couldn't be misinterpreted or slandered, uh, Chelsea was under consistent media slander. It wasn't until someone illegally taped her in a pre-trial appearance at Fort Meade that we hear her voice, and it's a, it's a rational voice, the voice of conscience, it's a sane voice, you know, all these things we were being told that she wasn't. And, of course, once she's sentenced, she has a little bit more access to speaking, starts writing for The Guardian a bit, but it's also very, you know, restricted. And uh, so now she has her own voice completely, is out, out and what Phil Berrigan used to call minimum security, out of jail anyway, but this can't be freedom. Um, so that's great. So, you know, my role as a former US uh, president of the United States, so I came connected to the story, or people like Ben Griffin, who are veterans of the same war, Chelsea was a veteran of, and others from the LGBT community, like Peter Tatchell and others, connected from that angle. And now our role is to, to step back, as Chelsea can you know, obviously speak for herself. So... Um, especially those first three years, there was a great need for advocacy. Talk a bit more about those first three years, the treatment. Uh, well, well, the treatment from memory in Quantico, she was, I think, awoken at, say, six in the morning, and from that point to ten at night, had to give an audible response every five minutes. Are you okay? Yes. Are you okay? Yes. Are you okay? So it's pretty much like, you know, Chinese water torture. She could not exercise in her cell. She could not lay down in her cell from 6 to 10. If she was caught doing any of this, the response team would come into the cell and, um, you know, put her in a stress position. And uh, if she was asleep at night and faced the wall or put her hand over her face, the military response team would come to the cell, wake her up, put her in a stress position. So it was very much, you know, psychological breaking down, attempt to break her down. There was, I think, one hour of exercise a a day that took place in a larger room while she was in shackles. She was handcuffed, waistcuffed, leg cuffed. There are incidents where they strip her naked, make her stand at attention for quite a long time and just to basically humiliate her and and break her down. I remember one real petty thing is, you know, one response she responds, yes, sir, and they're US Marines, so apparently you don't say... Yes, sir, you say, aye, aye, like you're in the Navy, and they just kind of ripped it off. So, you know, it's all that kind of constant petty breaking down of you as a, as a prisoner. So, yeah, I, I found the anti-war movement very lacking in supporting her. And I, I remember going to an event in London the day the, the cables were published, and it was full of Labor Party, including Jeremy Corbyn, actually, and Socialist Workers' Party on the platform. And they're all celebrating this great WikiLeaks release but there was no mention of the person who was already in prison for taking that risk. It took me six months, really, to engage it. And I remember going to an anti-war march at the end of 2010, uh, maybe involving about 10,000 people, and drawing up a placard with free Bradley Manning at the time. And that was the only sign or banner or mention of her at that march in London, six months into incarceration. So, you know, the, the professional anti-war people did a pretty slack job at supporting those who resisted and exposed the war, especially in London. They're very hostile to Julian, etc. So that was a big struggle, just 
keeping that, keeping the intensity going and gathering a community in London that would support both Chelsea and Julian. Well, pretty much that took me up to 2013 and um, I kind of got quite ill out of the whole situation. I just got very, very angry. But after the sentencing, I went up to meet uh, Chelsea's mother, Susan. And uh, I just spoke over Skype last night at 5 o'clock in the morning here to a gathering in Dublin and Susan was there celebrating with the community that built up in Dublin to support the family in Pembrokeshire, Haverford West, South Wales. And Haverford West is about 10 miles from Fishguard where you get the ferry to Rosslare and Ireland. So it was actually a lot closer to Dublin than it was to London. And it was a really good move of us to, to bring the family to Dublin in, after the sentencing in 2013. And, and then people like Donald O'Kelly, who's a well-known actor and playwright in Dublin, brought about a dozen of us musicians, activists, artists, back to the hometown of Wales within six weeks of that event in Dublin where Jerry Conman, who's sadly passed away since, spoke on behalf of Julian and, and Chelsea. And, um, it's, yeah, it's just built up. And the family's been back to Ireland three or four times and Irish people have been over for Kayleys and stuff, uh, including at the funeral of uh, Chelsea's uncle Kevin, who just passed away about a month ago. So it's been a very organ organic, positive experience of, uh, of solidarity, you know, and, yeah, so... <laughs> it's so funny. Finish, it feels like for me hitting the finishing line and just collapsing now, you know. So we had an event in Brisbane on Saturday, great, and um, there was one in London last week, one in Dublin last night, and, and I think Philadelphia and San Francisco and Boston. Yeah. And her persistence to be allowed to be treated as a woman and be sent to a women's prisoner's prison, they resisted all that, but her... Her bravery, I would say, has made it easier for other prisoners to follow that well, line I think too. That, that actually became a much bigger issue than the nature of why she was in jail in the first place, which was anti-war or exposing the war. And, you know, like heavily funded groups like Amnesty International and the ACLU really took up the trans side of things. Amnesty never declared Chelsea a prisoner of conscience in relation to exposing the truth of the war but they ran with the, the trans rights stuff. But that was probably why she got out of jail. She didn't get out of jail because Obama was pressured by a mass anti-war movement. You know, like when President Carter pardoned all the draft resistors at the end of the Vietnam War when he became president, it was a response to a large anti-war movement, anti-war sentiment in America, an admission that Vietnam was a fuck-up. When you listen to Obama's last press conference in relation to the pardoning of Chelsea Manning, he does not mention Iraq once. He doesn't say, obviously, this soldier was under duress because we were involved in a war that I, Obama, had voted against and declared a stupid war when I ran for president. There was no mention of the war at all. So I think Obama, in his own self-interest, wanting to maintain a kind of liberal, liberal legacy, didn't want the suicide of a trans prisoner. And Chelsea had attempted suicide twice at the end of last year. And like at Christmas, I was thinking we're definitely going to be dealing with a suicide in the new year. And so it's quite amazing. Um, I think Chelsea had come to the conclusion that she couldn't do 28, another 28 years. So it's quite amazing that she walks free out of prison today. And, um, yeah, she resisted in jail. And she also wrote a great article just before she got out that was published in The Guardian, about the solidarity she got from other prisoners. Initially, I was concerned when she... I, I was actually taken through Leavenworth when I was a prisoner in the United States on Con Air, and they had um, soldiers on board with us who were handcuffed and shackled as well. 
I thought, oh, shit, she's going to be in a U.S. military prison. The guards have probably done tours of Afghanistan and Iraq. The government line is she cost lives there. So I thought she'd be very vulnerable. But uh, she was working in the kitchen. She wasn't on protection, wasn't in isolation. And it's quite a beautiful article where she thanks the prisoners she lived with for so many years for their support and sustaining her and stuff. So. What are the conditions now she's out? Does she have to report regularly? Does she have to those sorts of things? I think, no, I think, I, I think it's over. It wasn't a pardon. It was a commutation. So she's released pretty much to the day or the date she was arrested in Baghdad, 17th of May, 2010, 17th of May, 2017, she gets out. And... Um, you know, she obviously needs time and space, like all prisoners do, to come out of that institution. Seven years is a long time. It's pretty difficult not to end up institutionalised. And, um, you know, it sounds like she's surrounded by good people and there's been a good fundraising effort. I think they raised 100 grand to support her in her first year outside of jail. I think she's still in the military, actually. I read an article the other day. <laughs> they don't let you go. I think she's still... She's not getting paid, but could be called up again. Yeah, I just read that in, uh, on the mainstream media last week. I remember a British soldier being convicted of murdering an unarmed Catholic in Northern Ireland, and he did his time, was back in the military and back in Northern Ireland uh, during the Troubles. So, you know, the military the military have an interesting relationship to the law, I think. You know, I remember in Townsville about 10 years ago, a guy got his throat slit, wasn't killed by some US Marines, and they weren't charged in Queensland. They were just taken back to America. One didn't get charged at all. And one got charged and found not guilty at a military court-martial that the victim was, wasn't aware of, you know, wasn't called to testify. So there is a, a kind of odd relationship between the military and the law. She is appealing her conviction? I personally wouldn't, you know, that's a lot of resources, a lot of money into lawyers and stuff, and, you know, good luck to them if they choose to do that. But, you know, for me as an anti-war person, I'm, I'm about supporting the next resistor and obviously, you know, Julian Assange and but uh, other soldiers who are, who are refusing and stuff. So, yeah, I guess the plan, you know, ACLU, you know, obviously lawyers want to do things in the courts and activists want to do things on the streets. <laughs> so, yeah, there is proposal to appeal, but, um, I'd, you know, I'd question putting resources there really myself, but, you know, that's up to her and up to her lawyers, I guess. And she's free to travel outside the US? My understanding is that it's all over. There's no reporting or anything. You know, mother and uncles and aunts on the maternal side are still in Wales. I think she stated an intention to live in Maryland, where she's got relatives. But, uh, you know, I, I think she needs, in some ways, to keep it fairly quiet where she's living. And, you know, there's all, all sorts of, of nutters in, in America uh, who are very well armed. So, you know, I think the people advising her would, would be, you know, emphasising a certain amount of caution in terms of her own personal safety and security. Well, just finally, talking about Chelsea, what would you say was the result of her exposures? I think, you know, historically, and you're looking at a war. Like last night, they had a meeting in Riyadh, Donald Trump, and all these royal families that the British created after World War One. you know, the Sauds, the Jordanians, the, the uh, people running the Dubai casino brothels, etc. you know, all these... Mickey Mouse royal families the Brits came up with after World War One, And these are the people that encouraged Saddam Hussein into an eight-year war in Iran in the 1980s with the, the fault of uh, invasion, the uh, result of invasion of Kuwait when he thought he was owed money for that war. And, you know, then the sanctions under the Clintons that killed a million children and then the invasion under George Bush Jr. So this is a war that really goes back to 1980. 
And, you know, the Western involvement in terms of boots on the ground, 1991, the 26-year war, like Australian troops from Brisbane, Gallipoli Barracks, our bombers from Ambly Air Force Base are still over there. And that's a long war. And, you know, Chelsea's four years of age when it starts in 91. I think she's the one that paid the highest price for exposing and resisting this war, along with Julian Assange. And, uh, you know, historically, as, as you know, the Berrigans and Daniel Ellsberg and, and the Chicago 8 and others are remembered as, as the high-profile resistors of that Vietnam period, I think it will be Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange who, who are remembered historically as the people exposed the nature of this war, you know. And, um, and they did it on the basis of the time the rest of us knew we'd, uh, we'd start speaking out and acting up. And um, I think the jury's still out on whether that's the case. I think a lot of people just don't want to know, you know. All we're asked to do now in modern warfare is to avert our gaze. We're not asked for conscription. We're not asked for rationing. We're just asked to look the other way. And that's all Chelsea Manning had to do in 2010 in Baghdad. And she wouldn't have been locked up for the last seven years, you know. That's Brisbane anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly. And on the program next week, Kieran will be talking about Julian Assange. Stop bailing our kids. The juvenile justice system is a racist disgrace. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is launching a campaign to highlight factors including poverty, homelessness, loss of culture and racist over-policing as key contributors to youth incarceration in Victoria. The campaign kicks off with a week of action starting on the steps of State Parliament on Thursday the 25th of May at 12.30. Be there. For more information including campaign details go to isjamelbourne.com Let's hold the Andrews government to account and halt the law and order race to the bottom. ISJA Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. For the second time this month, a vessel carrying mineral phosphate rock from occupied Western Sahara has been detained by a national court. This time in Panama of a Danish vessel, Ultra Innovation, heading to Canada for the Canadian company Agrium. The first detained was on May the 1st and at first it was thought that this was bound for Australia but in fact it was bound for New Zealand for a company called Balance Agri-Nutrients. To discuss the likely consequences of these two seizures I spoke yesterday to Kamal Fadel, the Polisario Front representative to Australia and New Zealand and began by asking Kamal about the first ship which was bound for New Zealand but was stopped in South Africa, and what he could tell us about the trade by Morocco with New Zealand of Western Sahara phosphate. Well, there has been uh, a lot of um, shipments. According to the CEO of Balance Agri-Nutrients, there have been uh, around 100 shipments in the past from Western Sahara of phosphates, uh, from Western Sahara to New Zealand. So it's been a, an extensive business, which is uh, not good at all for us, for the people of Western Sahara, because it uh, denies them a resource that uh, they will need to rebuild their country in the future. It also uh, supports the uh, occupation, the uh, Moroccan regime, because the money goes to Morocco and goes to maintaining the the occupation of Western Sahara, it does hurt us a lot. Has the Polisario Front approached this company to fill them in for the the true 
situation in Western Sahara? Yes, we have. We have uh, on uh, several occasions uh, written to the company and also written to the uh, New Zealand uh, Association, uh, the, the Fertilizer Association of New Zealand, which Balance is, is a member. There have been also several articles in the media. There have been uh, programs on the television. They are well aware, uh, and even Balance's uh, CEO um, accepts that he has been to, to the area. He knows what's going on. They know very well what they're doing, but they keep doing it. What was the process to have the ship detained in South Africa? We have uh, engaged uh, lawyers there, and uh, they they have gathered the necessary information and approached uh, a judge, and uh, uh, he looked at, uh, you know, the the information before him, and he um, can see that there is a case that, uh, you know, there is an issue to be considered here. Is this to do with a court hearing, a court decision in Europe? Uh, Well, not only that, but that does help. It clarifies the issue further, uh, but there is the International Court of Justice verdict uh, on Western Sahara in 1975. There is the UN uh, legal advisor Hans Correll's opinion of 2002, there is the um, the fact that no one, no country or international organization recognizes Morocco's occupation uh, of West Sahara or sovereignty over the territory. Uh, there is the fact that South Africa recognizes the Sahara Republic as a sovereign state. There is the African Union legal opinion and uh, call on all members to respect it, that West Sahara also should be protected. So there, are, there is uh, ample evidence, there is uh, enough legal background to allow us to have a, our case heard. I'm just wondering why it's taken so long to take an action like this. We've never had the resources to, to do it, and we have given also time for these companies to uh, realise that what they are doing is wrong, but they ignored us, they ignored our letters, they ignored our approach, they kept doing it, they, they said they will keep doing it. So we had to do something, do something which is peaceful, which is legal, we're not, we're not using arms or terrorist actions, we're using uh, the law. There was a court hearing last week. What came out of that? What came out of that is very interesting and is is, is encouraging. Uh, it's very positive so far that uh, the, the High Court in South Africa, sitting in you know in Port Elizabeth, three judges looked at this issue. They had Moroccan lawyers or the lawyers representing uh, OCP and Fospoca, the two Moroccan companies. They heard our lawyers. They considered the evidence before them, the documents. They questioned the lawyers. And Morocco's lawyers' intent was to throw this case out of the court immediately uh, and release the vessel. They said that this is just a political issue, it's not a legal matter. South Africa does not have the right or the authority a South African court to consider it. It has never done anything like this before. But the judges said, no, this is not, uh, you know, what we are going to do. We are going to consider further everything we heard today. 
and they reserved their judgment, they postponed their judgment until the 19th of June. And they also extended the hold on the vessel, the interdict to stop the vessel from traveling to New Zealand until the 19th of June. So that's, they, they will uh, publish their uh, judgment on whether to go for a trial or whether to release the vessel. There was a talk that the, if they put a bond that they could take the ship and fix it up later. Is, that didn't happen? That didn't happen. They, they chose not to do it. And what is also strange uh, is the fact that Balance, as a company that has purchased this uh, commodity, chose not to uh, present uh, or to uh, uh, question or to uh, have uh, lawyers uh, approaching the court. They, they just uh, our witnesses there, they are, they're just sitting there and not doing anything. Which, you know, they could have released this commodity if they have put what is called a security. Seems they don't, uh, they don't want to do that. Uh, they're playing uh, tricks <laughs> and they're not considering the uh, interests of the uh, farmers in New Zealand or the uh, or their uh, shareholders and uh, they're playing the game of the Moroccan uh, company. How has it been reported in New Zealand, are you aware of? This issue has been reported extensively in New Zealand, uh, in, in the radio, on the radio, in, in the newspapers, in, I think on television also. Uh, so people are aware of it, although they, I don't know if they are aware of all the facts because most of these uh, media outlets, they have been speaking to the uh, CEO of, the, of Balance, the New Zealand company. So I, I hope uh, that it is very clear for the uh, New Zealand people that um, this company is doing something wrong, unethical, improper, immoral, uh, illegal, uh, and this is uh, affecting the uh, New Zealand name and standing in, in the international uh, opinion that New Zealand usually respected, you know, the law and and stood behind or in favour of uh, people who have been colonised, uh, people who are, you know, like their stand on East Timor was very, uh, very good. Uh, and I hope they realise that they are doing something here wrong and rectify it uh, as soon as possible. The second vessel was carrying 55,000 tonnes of phosphate. It was bound for Canada for the company Agrium and detained on a court order on the 17th of May. That was going to Canada. What do we know about Agrium, the, the company who's importing it from Morocco? Agrium is uh, the, the company, number one in, in terms of the exploitation and plunder of uh, this commodity, the phosphates from West Sahara. So it has been importing um, a lot of, uh, you know, phosphates from Western Sahara for many years. And we have also approached them. We have uh, written many letters to them. They, uh, like balance, ignored us. Uh, and uh, they just put their head in the sand and kept doing this. But we managed to... Um, get a court order in Panama on the 17th of May to uh, stop this uh, boat, uh, this vessel, which is called Ultra Innovation, going to Canada through the Panama Canal. It did, in fact, stop for a few days, 
And about two days ago, the uh, company the, which uh, owns Altra Innovation, which is uh, called Altra Balk, Danish company, put uh, security for the vessel uh, with the court, and the vessel continued its journey to Canada. There have been protests in Canada against these shipments in the past and to the present? Yes, there have been uh, a lot of people there in Canada, our friends who uh, attended, uh, I think, uh, these companies' uh, uh, AGMs. They have been talking to them. They have been sending also letters and calling them and saying that what they are doing is wrong and they should stop. But these companies are very selfish. They look at uh, Western Sahara Phosphate as um, good quality, it's available. They ignore the law. They ignore the ethics. They ignore um, anything. They just want to make profit, uh, and they keep doing it. Uh, it's, it's really a shame. It's a, it's a pity. They don't know that these people, uh, who these commodities belong to them, they are not benefiting. They don't agree to it. In fact, most of our people live in poverty and in refugee camps. They have not even enough food for many years, for 40 years. This action is bolstering Morocco to continue to defy the United Nations and the international community and international legality in its uh, occupation and abuse of human rights because they're getting millions of dollars from these companies. They are not only uh, also exploiting Western Sahara's process, but also the fisheries, the agriculture, the benefit is, is huge for Morocco. And this is why they don't want to see a resolution to this issue. And they would maintain by force their occupation of our country uh, until, you know, these companies stop, until the international community do something, until the international public opinion turns against them. And we haven't managed to do that so far. How many other countries and companies are involved in this trade? Uh, quite a few companies. In Australia, for example, there is, is Hitek Pivot, which also continue to do the same thing. And it would be interesting after these actions in, in South Africa and in Panama, whether Hitek Pivot would uh, reflect and uh, do something, you know, stop, find another source, find another alternative, because this is not the only place where phosphates exist. Phosphate exists in Morocco, in Algeria, for example, in, in, in South Africa, I think, I believe, um, China, in other places where you could find these commodities. You could also find alternatives to phosphates. Try to, you know, find other ways which are more environmentally friendly and better and just stop abusing us. They want to do us, to, to our country the same thing that they did also in Nauru, for example. It's a shame, and it should be stopped. This has been going on for many, many years, as you said. What's the condition of the, the remaining phosphate? What does the area look like where they're taking this phosphate from? Well, it doesn't look good. It's, uh, it's polluting the, the, the water, the sea. The, it's the, the best quality, the first layer of the phosphate that is the best quality has gone uh, now. So there is less, lesser quality phosphate available. And the, the problem also at, at the Fosboka company, which is uh, exploiting these resources, is that they have been 
neglecting and marginalizing any Sahrawi who worked there during the Spanish period. Any, very few Sahrawis get jobs there, so m- most of them are settlers who come from Morocco. They are in management, they, are, they get the jobs, uh, and our people are left out. You know, the situation there doesn't look good, unfortunately, and it will continue to deteriorate, and this resource will be a finite resource. It's non-renewable resource. So it will keep getting lesser and lesser. You mentioned before that this is not the only commodity that the Moroccans are taking from Western Sahara. There's the fisheries, there's vegetables. What else are they taking, as you say, illegally? The the salt, even sand to send to beaches in in, in Spain, for example, in Las Palmas, Gran Canaria. Uh, and in Tenerife, Lanzarote, you know, uh, they they take whatever they can. (laughs) So they're not leaving anything out. You know, they're they're abusing the the water system there. They're doing, you know, um, farms of tomatoes, which is good quality, and they send to Europe and put Morocco on it instead of Western Sahara to avoid being detected. Uh, they, um, mainly the fisheries and the phosphate is the b- biggest business there, but there are other things like, uh, as I mentioned, agriculture and uh, salt and uh, sand, etc. So are these commodities in the same legal area as the phosphate? If they can stop the phosphate, can they also stop shipments of these commodities as well? Well, I hope so, because it's the same thing. The, the, the basics are there, you know. It's uh, an illegal occupation. The people are not benefiting. They don't agree to it. And it's, it's a, an illegal exploitation. So it goes, it's the same thing. So we're likely to see more detentions of ships? Well, I certainly hope so, because if these companies don't stop, we have no other alternative but to keep following them and um, keep using all the means available to us. You're encouraged, though, aren't you, by these two detentions of the ships, that this might be the thin edge of the wedge? Well, we are encouraged. We are satisfied so far that, you know, justice would would take its course and that, uh, you know, this is a deterrent to other uh, wrongdoers and that they should take notice uh, and stop this plunder, this exploitation, you know, do the right thing and stop abusing our resources and our people and our cause and give us, uh, you know, a chance to have our basic rights, uh, freedom, being able to sustain ourselves and build our country uh, and just be like people in New Zealand, Australia, or Canada. You know, this has been going on for a long time. We have suffered enough, and it's time to stop. I'm sure that this issue is not going to go away in a hurry. That's Kamal Fidel, the representative of the Polisario Front for Western Sahara, for Australia and New Zealand. It's coming up to 5.30. In a moment, we'll be hearing from... Professor Emeritus James Petrus. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate with Rod Quantock is on again. Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall. 
MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news. Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan, Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morven Smith and Pauline Fartson Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash QAEN or call 9639 8622. That's 9639 8622, a 3CR supporter. A few descriptions of US President Donald Trump. The most ill-informed, underprepared, ethically challenged, psychologically ill-equipped president in US history, a moron, erratic, undisciplined, and I could go on. On the other hand, Trump says no politician in history has been treated worse or more unfairly. When I spoke this morning to Emeritus Professor James Petrus at his home in New York, I asked him to comment on these assessments. I'm not a psychologist, neither are any of these commentators to uh, make these kinds of evaluations. I think on his political record, he's largely pursued an agenda which would be in line with the mainstream of the United States with some exceptions. If we look at his uh, foreign policy, today he's in Israel, as Obama was. He was in Saudi Arabia, as uh, Obama was. He's negotiating with China on a trade agreement, which is somewhat better than Obama has. He has claimed to work better with Russia, but his uh, policies have been uh, undercut by the uh, Democrats and uh, some dissident Republicans who are much more Russophobic. He's uh, intervened in Syria, as Obama has. He supported the bombing of Yemen, as uh, Obama has. He's uh, calling for the overthrow of the Venezuelan government, as Obama has. And I might mention in passing that all of these policies are supported by European Union. Now, where Trump differs is he's going to cut substantially the uh, very poverty-stricken health programs that we have, and uh, he's going to have to face a lot of opposition in Congress. So it's dubious whether his budget is uh, going to be able to reach the uh, fiscal targets that he's set out. There's no doubt that Trump is uh, pushing to uh, increase the expulsion of illegal immigrants. But then let's remember that Trump has expelled 164,000 people in three months, which is about on the par with what Obama did eight years, two million people. There's been an enormous exaggeration of the novelty and the uh, negative aspects of Trump in comparison to the Democratic Party and uh, what the uh, so-called liberals uh, carried out. No doubt his uh, media attention has been overwhelmingly hostile. 
but then uh, they always have their own biases. What we have in Trump is another aspect of oligarchical politics in the United States, whether it's Obama on one side or uh, Trump on the other. They both represent Wall Street. They both support Zionism. They both are looking to overthrow progressive governments. There are some deviations. The U.S. under Obama was instrumental in overthrowing the Ukrainian government and installing a puppet regime. Trump has more or less uh, remained status quo on that. He's not escalated nor de-escalated. So uh, as you look at the overall picture, the only big difference is that the stock market has uh, performed much more robustly under Trump with expectations there'll be a sharp decline in regulation and in taxation, whereas Obama was more or less in line with the supporting the corporations in their overseas undertakings and tax evasion through retaining their earnings overseas. So I think that this uh, rhetoric against Trump is equally applicable to uh, Obama and Bush, Clinton before him. Well, then why is he so unpopular in his first 100 days? As I mentioned, he has been virulently persecuted in a very distorted uh, way by the mass media. And uh, my 70 years of following the news, I've never seen so much virulence, hostility, false news, trivia launched against a newly elected president in my lifetime. This is an oligarchical struggle. Trump is on one side, the Democrats, Clintonites, and others are on the other. And the uh, anti-Trump forces totally dominate the mass media. They have been very active in the uh, permanent state apparatus, the FBI, the CIA, the national security agencies. And they originally objected to supposed ties with Russia, which they've never, ever demonstrated in any serious way. That has uh, been a surrogate for opposing the electorate, largely working-class, low-paid workers who voted for Trump, and and that's the uh, target. Attacking Russia to attack Trump to undermine the uh, support that he received from overwhelmingly among industrial workers in the United States. And I think this element is misjudged. The workers misread or took serious Trump's promise to create well-paying jobs, but his attention to the working class was his biggest as far as the uh, other wings of the oligarchy. Can he produce those jobs for the working class? No, he hasn't produced any major breakthroughs. He still talks about bringing industry back home, but so far it's been uh, perhaps too early, but uh, the record so far hasn't been a very promising perspective, nor does his infrastructure program 
seem like it's going to take off along the lines that could create massive long-term jobs. So it's the usual popular demagogy that is very common in U.S. politics, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. As you remember, Obama promised to end wars, and he multiplied them to seven. He promised to uh, decrease inequalities, and they increased. So I think this kind of wild-eyed election campaign demagogy is quite common here. The uh, question is now whether the uh, opposition oligarchs will succeed in impeaching Trump or whether Trump will survive and pursue his overseas foreign policy with Saudi Arabia and Israel and uh, secure enough funding to provide some concessions to the uh, working class. Up to now, he's done nothing. What would it take to impeach him? It's hard to tell. Uh, I think he's they're pursuing some lines of attack, primarily the uh, Russian connection and uh, the uh, assistant attorney general Rosenstein uh, appointed a special prosecutor who was very close to the uh, Clintonite oligarchs. He will be in charge of looking at any and all sides of the Trump economic, political, electoral politics in order to find some pretext to impeach him and present a uh, situation where he'll be forced to leave. But Trump is not going easily. He's uh, very determined to stay in power, and he's building very powerful overseas allies. He's now consolidated his support among right-wing rulers in the Islamic and uh, Arab world. He's uh, building bridges with uh, Israel to strengthen or try to seduce some of the Zionists who are involved in ousting him. He goes to the Vatican to make amends with the Pope and hope to draw some Catholic support. He'll go to Brussels to get the backing of the European Union. So it's a, a, a fight of oligarchs depending uh, on the anti-Trump people have control of the permanent state uh, apparatus. Trump is building an overseas alliances, and uh, this will be a very bloody battle in the next months ahead. Why are his detractors so obsessed with Russia? That comes from the uh, Obama-Clinton, who began this uh, fight with the coup against the Ukraines. I think it uh, goes back to uh, building the uh, military bases surrounding Russia. Uh, and it goes back even earlier to their success under Clinton in savaging the Russian economy and creating a virtual vassal. State. And that's their model. They, they want to return back to the 90s, the Yeltsin period, where Russia was a very weak second, third-rate power. With Putin, that has changed dramatically. Russia has recovered. Russia is now a sovereign state. 
Russia is growing, expanding, and has regained its stature as a global competitor with the U.S. I, I think this is the roots. They want to go back to the age of Clinton and Bush, where they could totally dominate the world, a unipolar world, as they called it, without having to face Russia and China and other independent states like Iran and uh, other country, uh, countries like that. Where does Turkey fit into his plans? This is a very complicated picture. Turkey was one of the U- U.S.'s staunchest allies in channeling overseas terrorist arms against Syria. And that held very strongly for a, a substantial time, and Turkey uh, was active in attacking Syria, intellect, indirectly Russia, etc. But, and this is a big but, the U.S. was also infiltrating the Turkish state apparatus through their so-called Islamic preacher, who's uh, based about two hours from where we're speaking from. This group, led by Gulen, Gulen, G-U-L-E-N, the preacher, had penetrated all aspects of the Turkish state, and uh, Gulen is a staunch ally and supported by the U.S. where he is currently residing. The U.S., uh, either its uh, planning went awry or the Gulenists uh, made themselves a party to a coup, that coup was smashed, and of course Erdogan took that as a point of departure to smash a lot of his non-Gulenist opposition, Republicans, secularists, leftists, what have you. Now, the U.S., having lost their fifth column in Turkey, was looking at how they can retain Turkey as a ally in the attacks on Syria. However, they ran into another problem. The U.S. Uh, puppet terrorists in the Middle East, in particular in Syria, were ineffective. And so they began to work deeply and pervasively with the Kurds. This created a serious rift with Turkey because the Kurdish fighters in Syria were hooking up with the Kurdish fighters in Turkey. The U.S. alliance greatly provoked Turkey, which sees a Kurdish state in Syria aligning itself with the Kurds in Iraq and in Turkey and building and separating a good chunk of Turkey into this uh, greater Kurdistan. So currently, the U.S. is at a very difficult uh, balancing act between using the Turks against Syria, but defending the Kurds against the Turks. And so Turkey is in the process of trying to negotiate some way of isolating the Kurds continuing their opposition in Syria, and consolidating the Erdogan dictatorship in Turkey. Where does Saudi Arabia fit into all this? 
Saudi Arabia has been the principal financier of ISIS, Taliban, and any other terrorist group in the Middle East. They have bankrolled, armed, and supported each and every terrorist group, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iran. It is the prime supplier of terrorists. It supplied two-thirds of the terrorists who bombed towers in New York and the Pentagon in Washington. Yet, uh, they are looked at as a very important ally of the United States because they are a big oil supplier and financier of the military-industrial complex in the United States. Syria is a weak non-entity politically and militarily because no one in uh, Saudi Arabia is capable of retaining any influence in the Middle East because it's a rotten, anachronistic dictatorship. Uh, it has oil, it has wealth, and it has allies, and that's what keeps the Saudi autocracy in power. The focus now is on Iran. What's likely to happen there? Well, that's the deal. Uh, Saudi Arabia bought the wholehearted support of Trump by handing over $350 billion in military and other projects. We'll see how much of it is actually implemented. In exchange for that, and rounding up so 40 so-called Islamic states, Trump's trade-off is to denounce the so-called Shia Democratic Iranian Republic. While Iran has free elections, competitive elections, Saudis continue chopping off heads and executing opposition figures. Iran has very strong domestic support. It is well prepared to resist aggression. I think that Trump is trumpeting his anti-Iranian rhetoric in order to continue to receive his financial backers from Saudis and also to satisfy the Israelis who are virulently opposed to Iran's support for the Palestinians. The Israelis and Saudis uh, allies de facto in opposing Iran because Iran supports self-determination in Syria. They support Hezbollah in Lebanon against Israeli intrusions and invasions and attacks, uh, and they have worked out agreements with China, Russia, and even some of the European countries. So it's very difficult to see what Trump can do besides perhaps ending sanctions altogether, and that provokes a whole new line of conflicts particularly if Iran returns to uh, its nuclear investigations. How strong is Iran? How much have they been weakened by the sanctions? Well, I think Iran's economy uh, was adversely affected by the sanctions. They have to diversify their economies and not depend on oil. They have to uh, broaden uh, their ties especially in Asia. 
they have to look toward greater flexibility in opening up opportunities for business and science, and they have to uh, lower their theocratic influences uh, in the sense of uh, dictating uh, strategic, economic, and social policies. And I think they're moving in the right direction. The recent elections were a resounding victory for those forces looking to expand their economic horizons and social and political openings. Where does China fit in with Trump's vision of the future? Trump, uh, a lot of bombast, uh, but uh, you have to understand that 500 biggest corporations in the United States have relations with China. That's the first thing. The second thing is the U.S. depends on China holding over $3 trillion in U.S. bonds. Any confrontation with China will pay an enormous economic price for the United States. Second of all, the U.S. is interested in intimidating China by focusing on North Korea. North Korea is a ploy for the U.S. to build up its uh, military capacity to oversee uh, Chinese uh, strategic developments. And I think the Chinese are very aware, aware of this while they impose certain constraints on North Korea. They are fully aware that Trump is playing a double role, negotiating some economic agreements, but retaining the uh, military threats. Uh, In other words, uh, while they talk about North Korea, they're really interested in intimidating China. This is a, a phony issue. This is a provocation on their part, but uh, the uh, North Koreans are very tough. They're not going to be intimidated. They suffered four million deaths during the Korean War. They're not likely to fold up and collapse in front of these challenges. And the new president in South Korea, who rhetorically talked of a new opening to the North Korea, has taken some very stupid steps in alienating North Korea in his first few weeks in government. So I'm not too optimistic about the elections in South Korea because they're still handmaidens of the U.S. military and their anti-North Korean policies. Finally, James, looking south of the US, the strife in Venezuela and increasingly in Brazil. Well, Brazil is easier. I think the uh, current person who calls himself president, who took power through an institutional coup temer, is on his way out. He's deeply immersed in corruption Even all of his closest allies are abandoning him. The streets are full of protesters, and it seems as if, even though he's the darling of Wall Street and the city of London, he has virtually no political support in the country, and I predict will be ousted at the latest in three months. So I think we're going through a period of turmoil and conflict in Brazil, And uh, I don't know exactly the outcome. The progressive and the left 
are calling for immediate elections to replace Tamer. The center-right and right-wing parties want to replace Tamer through a congressional vote where they can pick another of their uh, neoliberal candidates. This is not clear how it will be resolved. It's up in the air, but clearly the Wall Street uh, dream of uh, reversing 40 years of Brazilian social progress, economic independence, will not be realized. As far as Venezuela, it's really an international war. They call it a civil war. On the one side is the U.S.-backed opposition. On the other side are the uh, center-left progressives that are maintaining the the uh, Chavez heritage. The economy is in shambles because of the violence engaged in by the uh, opposition. The sabotage, the economy, has led uh, to a, an enormous economic crisis. But the government official supporters number at least 30 or 40 percent of the population today and these are active forces. These are people that are capable of going in the streets. The opposition has uh, approximately 40 to 50 percent of the electorate at this time. This is going to be uh, resolved electorally or through the a major uh, attempt at a seizure of power. And I'm very dubious of, tr of Trump sending troops in. If he can get the rest of the Latin American right wing to send troops, that's possible. But I doubt if Brazil, Argentina, or Chile are in conditions to commit. The only country that could send troops into Venezuela is Colombia, and they are in the process of trying to subdue the uh, former guerrillas in the FARC. So Washington would have to go in with the token force of Latin Americans, and I don't think Trump is in favor of a direct U.S. intervention. They'll support an uprising in the Venezuelan forces, and to me, that's the decisive point at this time. As long as the military retains its constitutional commitment, the U.S. will not be able to overthrow Maduro uh, in the approximate future. If the military splits or goes over to the opposition, then it's a different ballgame. And that was Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking with me early this morning from his home in New York. And that's all for me for now. And don't forget that Radiothon Day for Tuesday Home Time is the lucky 13th of June. And I'll be hoping that regular listeners and irregular listeners will be listening on that day and digging deep to make sure that this program and all the other wonderful programs on 3CR continue for another year. We've been here for 40, nearly 41. Let's keep on going and see what we can do. I'll be going now and Done By Law will be with you in about two minutes' time. Let's go out with a little bit of music. Bye for now.